The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. leads me to ask you, what were you doing 40 days ago? Can you remember what you were doing 40 days ago? No? It is probably early February, so it's probably early January or something like that. Great, you don't have to tell me. It's okay. Would, do you think you'd remember if you'd just been married 40 days ago? You'd think so. You'd think so. What? Do you think you would remember the promises you made on that day if it was just 40 days ago? You'd think so. Well, see, 40 days before Exodus 32 is Exodus 24. It's the time when Moses comes down from the mountain, Mount Sinai. He speaks to the people, the Israelites, who God has rescued out of the land of slavery, out of Egypt, and brought to himself. And they have the situation where Moses tells the people what God has said, the Lord's words and laws. And we read that Israel respond in one voice, it says in verse 3 of Exodus 24, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. That's an I do moment, right? Will you, Israel, take the... We will do. We do. So, after that, there's some sacrifices that happen. And then Moses, Joshua, and the elders of Israel go up on the mountain. To meet with the Lord. And there is this amazing scene where they, Moses, Aaron, 70 elders of Israel, actually saw the God of Israel. It describes it this way under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But, the God, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God. And then they ate and drank. It looked like a wedding reception, didn't it? Feasting happened in the presence of the one they had just married. But as we now come 40 days later to Exodus 32, the we do has changed to be done. Moses and Joshua in Exodus 32 are up on the mountain again. God is engraving the Ten Commandments on the tablets. But while that's happening upstairs, 
There's a ruckus going on downstairs. Moses is in the presence of God receiving the law. Joshua is just a bit further back, waiting for Moses. And downstairs, Israel are turning to sin. There's a sense as we go through Exodus 32 that we should almost be shouting at our Bibles. What are you doing? You just promised to be faithful and now you're being unfaithful. Forty days it's taken you. The leaders of Israel had just been up in the presence of God himself and shared a meal. They had just been eating and drinking in fellowship with God. Now the people are eating and drinking in fellowship with a cow. It's crazy. But the problem is, if we find ourselves with a how-could-you attitude, if we find ourselves yelling at our Bible towards Israel, we know deep down, don't we, that we're just the same. As we go through Exodus 32, I want to take notice of the words in our passage that talk about vision, or someone saw. And these will help us to make some ob- observations about what is going on. And to start with, the, the first point we might make is that a right view of people shows they have a bias towards sin. We'll see this in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 32. A right view of people shows they have a bias towards sin. Now, anyone who has seen lawn bowls will know what a, a bias is. Like one side of the bowl is weighted and so the, the bowl curves that way. Israel's vision shows that they have a bias towards sin. Look with me at verses 1 to 4 of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears. Uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel failed to trust God's faithfulness. Did you notice the vision words there in verse 1? When the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down. Israel has feared that they've lost connection, their connection point with God. They've said, from this point on, Moses, don't let God speak to us 
one-to-one, you, you be our go-between. You speak to us on God's behalf, and now they fear that they've lost that. They can see the mountain right there. They can see God's presence. We're told it's filled with His glory. Like smoke and fireworks going on up there. They can see it, but how can they connect with God anymore if Moses is gone? Verse 4 tells us that Israel wants a God who will save them from their enemies. They say, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. They want the God that will do for them what God, the Lord, did for them in Egypt. They they want a God who will go before them and lead them into the promised land. They want a God who will do what the Lord has promised. But these verses show us that they, they want a degree of control over their God. In Israel's try to domesticate God. Seems to be ridiculous, doesn't it? How can you domesticate the God that declared himself, I am who I am? When Israel first gets to Mount Sinai, God talks about his his identity. See that in chapter 19, verses 46. And he says to Israel, you will be for me. By now asking for a physical representation of God, Israel are trying to establish their own points of connection with God. They try to create an ability to bring God down, establishing the relationship on their terms. Verse 1 of Exodus 32 is Israel saying, No, God, you will be for us. They fail to trust God's word. They fail to trust his character in verses 2 to 6. We see this in Aaron's words and actions. Take off your gold and bring it to me. the, The use of gold here is significance in light of chapters 25 to 30, what's gone on before here. For this gold is to be used to furnish the tabernacle, the place where God himself will meet with the people. But instead they use this gold to make a cow. Their, their sin isn't limited to making an idol. Look at verses 5 to 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, that is the cow. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice in verse 5, when Aaron saw gives Yahweh the name of God to the gold cow. 
And in doing this, he divorces God's name from what God has revealed his character to be in chapter 20. And the result of doing this is not a holy nation by any stretch. It's not a holy nation that reflects the holy God has brought them to himself. It's a nation that reflects the rest of the nations and the false gods around them. What Israel is doing is sin, and they've failed to see that. God cannot be divorced from his character. He cannot be separated from who he has revealed himself to be. Is this so different to what we are tempted to do today? How often do we witness attempts by people to domesticate God? How often do we see people wanting God on their terms whilst falsely calling him the God of the Bible? A God who will let me keep my reputation when other Christians are getting hammered by society because their stance on the value of life or different moralism. Want a God who will go before us, who will allow us to chase satisfaction and life in something that is not God himself. We try to domesticate God when we think that God is happy with service on Sunday or maybe at a, a connect group during the week instead of being happy with a lifetime of service and sacrifice, a life given up to Him. Friends, when we do this, we sin. And a failure to recognize sin as sin shows that we fail to see God as God. So another point we can make now is that a right view of God leads to a right view of sin. We'll see this in verses 7 through to 25. A right view of God leads to a right view of sin. God sees the heart of his people. Look at verses 7 to 10 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation. Sin cannot be hidden from God. And when he sees them, what does he say? They are stiff-necked. Now, I'm sure we've all experienced a stiff-necked at some stage, haven't we? 
You wake up, you try to turn, oh, no, that one, oh, no. You can't be turned. You're set on your trajectory. God tells Moses what's been going on downstairs. And Israel becomes like a hot potato between God and Moses. When when their behaviour and their heart has been revealed, God starts to say, your people who you brought out of Egypt. It's like when parents might, in a nice way, disown a child. That's your son. Get it from you, not from me. Play this hot potato, don't you? So now God and Moses are doing this. You know, God's saying, they're yours. And Moses are no, no, they're not mine, they're yours. When Moses reaches the camp in verse 19, he witnesses exactly what God described. Their sin wasn't hidden from God. Moses' reaction when he sees Israel's sin shows us that sin deserves destruction. There are consequences for sin. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Moses' reaction here is both symbolic and tangible for us. He throws the stone tablets to the ground, breaking them, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant that has just been made. And what he does next shows there are very tangible consequences for sin. Look at verses 25 to 29 with me. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, that Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemy, when Moses stood in the gate, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. After being face to face with God, Moses' vision has been changed. He now sees things more as God sees things. Notice what happens inside of Moses when Moses sees the sin of the Israelites. 
We're told in verse 19 that he also burns inside him. That's the same language God uses in verse 10. When he says that his anger burns, he says to Moses, leave me alone that my anger might burn against them. And I might destroy them. Moses' actions come from understanding sin from God's viewpoint. And now the real sound of war can be heard in the camp. Those who are set apart to the Lord grab their swords and kill 3,000 people. Thus, destruction doesn't stop there. Verse 35 tells us that God sends a plague on his people as well. Israel get the same treatment as the Egyptians did. In Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. God said, Plagues. So in chapter 32, we now see Israel being treated as an enemy of God. The same can be said for those who turn from God today. They are enemies from God. See that in Hebrews chapter 10. Sin cannot be hidden from God and it deserves to be destroyed. We need to be able to see it. We need to be able to see it that way. Our sin deserves to be destroyed. But to have the right view of sin we need to first have a right view of God. When we see God as holy, we'll see sin as detestable. When we see God as just, we'll see turning away from Him as deserving of judgment. When we see God as good, we will see our rebellion against Him as evil. Israel has a problem. If the holy God came down to them in their sinful state, they would be destroyed. And they need to find a solution and find it quick. They can't just go around killing everyone who sins. Pretty soon there'd be no one left. There would be no nation of Israel. And this problem is universal, friends. God has been telling humans from the beginning, if you rebel against me, you will certainly die. The consequence of sin is death. But Moses isn't finished yet. Look at what he says in verses 30 to 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned, a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, 
if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have Moses identifies that the only thing that can save Israel from total destruction is God's forgiveness of their sin. And for that to happen, for forgiveness to be possible, there must be atonement for sin. Someone needs to take the fall for Israel's sin. And Moses even offers his life in place of Israel's. Through this, we now notice that a right view of sin reveals a need for its atonement. A right view of sin reveals a need for its atonement. There appeals, there appears to be hope, but it's a hope that's short-lived. Moses' plea is unsuccessful, and that's because even Moses isn't perfect. If he was to die, it would only achieve judgment for his own sin. He could, Moses could do nothing to atone for Israel's sin. So God says, we can't be together. I'm going to send you all away. Verses 1 to 6 of Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send you an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb upon them. Israel's connection to God would be gone if he didn't go there. The very thing that they feared they had lost, which drew them to sin, would actually be lost because of their sin. God would still give the promised land to the people. They would still have the land flowing with milk and honey, but they would have it without God. He would not go up among them. This is huge, friends. Up to this point in the book of Exodus, God has been drawing his people to himself. Now, because of their sin, God is going to send them away. And this message leads Israel into a state of grief and mourning. I think they're starting to get it. 
life with sin is a life without God. A life with sin is a life without God. Life without God is not life at all. Life without God is what Israel had in Egypt. A life without God is slavery, friends. One of the saddest things is that there are some people who go to churches today who are okay with that. People who would gladly take the promised land, the land of milk and honey, without the presence of God. They have a view that life without God can still be a good life, a prosperous life. And they try to domesticate God and make a God who will go before them and leave them there. It's rubbish. Life without God is not life at all, it is slavery. And this passage is so helpful for us, not because it shows us how God will act towards us in our sin, but because it reveals how God does not act towards us. That seems to be a contradiction. If we are sinners like Israel, and God is holy, why does he not destroy us? How is it possibly possible for God to act differently? The answer is because of Jesus. Atonement has been made. See, while people have a bias towards sin, Jesus' bias was towards obedience. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, says Jesus. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. While we were still sinners and deserved judgment from God, Jesus was judged for our sin and provides the atonement that we need. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Matthew 27, 46 tells us that while we turn away from God and deserve to be removed from his presence, Jesus experienced God turning away from him. While on the cross bearing our sin, Jesus shouts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where Jesus, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And this is how God can act differently. 
this is how we cannot be judged for our sin. This is how we can avoid destruction things. We are forgiven because Jesus has made atonement and has appeased God's anger. So now we can forever experience the presence of God. This, is, this affects how we live, doesn't it? As his people, those being transformed into his image, our character should reflect God's. This is encouraging for us. No longer do we strap our swords to our sides, boys, because it's not our place to judge. Because atonement has been made by Jesus, our response should be to help people see God. To urge repentance and point people to the atoning death of Christ for them. When people see God's people, it should allow them to see the very image of God. Should help them to have a right view of their own sin. And for anyone who might be hearing this today and might find themselves identifying with Israel at the base of Mount Sinai, maybe you look upon your life and you go, Wow, I've been trying to domesticate God. I've been trying to make him a God who will be for me. The question is, how is your view of God? Can you see that your attempts to domesticate him is actually turning your back on him? I'd encourage you that if this is you to pray, the Holy Spirit will give you the right vision of God. To see God as He truly is. And as you have the right view of God, it leads you to have a right view of your sin. It leads you to knowing that you need atonement for a sin. And praise God, atonement has been made. Your sin. For anyone who can identify more as an enemy of God, you've never asked for that forgiveness of your sin. And maybe starting to see yourself as God sees you. Start to realize that your sin cannot be hidden from God. That he's got perfect sight. Well, hear this this morning. God's sight is perfect. And so is your Savior. See, where you fail, Jesus succeeds. And he is offered his body up in death as a ransom. He has done this to bring you 
to God. So that God can go forward in life among you and amongst us. I'd encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the sight to see Jesus as he truly is this morning. Jesus has taken the fall for your rebellion. Christ has suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Let me encourage us all. See Jesus as he truly is and turn back to him today. that we too are a stiff-necked people. We are hard to turn. We are born with a nature that has a bias towards sin. Father, we acknowledge this morning that often we try to domesticate you. where you have said that we will be a people for you. We try to make you a God for us who will do what we want. Lord, we confess our sin before you this morning. We have failed to trust you as we should. We have gone astray. In doing that, Lord, as your people, we have led others astray. So, Father, we ask you would forgive us of that, that you would cleanse us, and through the power and enabling of your Spirit, that you would make us clean. You would make us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation people who have a right view of you, the people who have a right view of sin, a people who will not accept the promised land unless it includes you. Forgive us, teach us and transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.